So why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 13 for today's study. On Wednesday night, we got about um, halfway through chapter 13. But I'd like to draw your attention to two micro parables. Two little micro parables. There, there's only a few verses given to these parables. A lot of the parables are like whole sections of chapters. Uh, but this, th- this is kind of a cool one, and it's very tiny. Um, and it's simple in some ways, but it's very profound in others. And I, I think we need to do some work uh, this morning on those parables. There was a, a rock hound named Rob Cutshaw. Uh, owns a little roadside shop outside of Andrews, North Carolina. And like many other rock shop owners, he wasn't an expert on rocks and gems and stuff like that, but he knew enough where he'd go and find the various rocks and, and you know agates and stuff, and he would then sell them and make a few extra bucks. He, it wasn't a great way to make a living. He had to cut wood on the side just to make a real living, but, but once in a while, he'd, he'd find something of value. But while on a dig, quite a few years back on a dig, he found this really large blue-colored stone, and uh, he didn't know exactly what it was, but he thought, boy, I, I'll, I'll get some money for this one. And he was kind of excited, was, and he, he called it big and purdy. That's what he called it. Um, and so he, uh, he thought, I could probably get three, 400 bucks for this thing. Uh, and, uh, and he stuck it under his bed because he thought, I'm gonna save that for a rainy day. Uh, you know, for when I need a few extra bucks, I'll, I'll, I'll cash that one in, you know, but he thought he'd keep it for a while. Well, he kept it under his bed for 20 years. Uh, but he came upon a, a sort of a, a, a tough time where he was hurt, and he thought, well, it's time to get out that big, purdy stone and, and, and you know, cash in. And he, he brought it down there, and lo and behold, it was the largest blue sapphire ever found known to humanity. Uh, 2,111 carats, uh, this sapphire stone. And back when, he, when, when this happened, he, uh, he got uh, $2.75 million for it. Uh, so his little rock hunting found out. Uh, don't you love stories where people kind of have a treasure? I remember um, uh, where one time when I uh, worked in Southern Oregon, I had this, one of my favorite friends, I had this lady friend whose uh, name was Nancy Sturm. She was our accountant. And, um, and she, she's a great lady, but she, she, she showed up one, one time to, to like uh, our, our, the lunchroom and she was practicing guitar. Uh, and I thought, oh, that's kind of cool. And I looked and I saw her guitar. I said, where did you get that? Uh, and we were all kind of marveling at her guitar. She said, oh, it's just an old guitar. You know, my grandpa gave it to me and it's been up in the attic and I, there was a couple broken strings and I pulled it down, you know, and, and uh, it was kind of funny because we, all of us guitar guys were like, wow, because it was like a, I forget what year it was, but it was like a really old Martin, you know, the little triple-aught Martin um, guitar, which if you know your guitars, this guitar was worth a lot of money. Uh, and, she, and we told her, she's like, whoa. And so the next day she shows up with a nice case. It didn't have a case before that. And she's, <laughs> she's like, carrying. <laughs> but anyway, we loved that because it was a treasure, you know. But as it turns out, this, this little parable is about a treasure that is found. And uh, it's our job to kind of discern what's the treasure? What's the story about? Well, let's take a look. It's Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 is where we begin. It says in verse 44, again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to treasure hid in a field, the which when a man hath found, he hideth and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth that field. The end, that's it. That's the, that's the parable. 
Like, it's funny because most of the parables kind of like have a little more of a storyline. But this one, uh, you've got a few major components. Let's break them down. First of all, you've got the kingdom of heaven, number one. That's, the, that's what these parables are about. We'll talk about that more in a second. You have the treasure itself. Um, you've got the field. Uh, and you've got the man who found the treasure uh, and, uh, and sells his possessions and buys the field. Um, and so first, let's kind of, let's talk about the kingdom of heaven first, because there's a little confusion on what is the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and there's debate on what the kingdom means. Uh, and, and like, let me start with some of the teaching I think that's incorrect out there that people are saying that, that we live in the kingdom right now. It's called kingdom now or dominion theology that people push and you and I are living in the kingdom. And one of the th marks of a church or, or a, uh, you know, like a denomination that sort of pushes kingdom theology um, you'll notice they're very much into saving the earth. They're very much into voting and electing Christian officials. Well, Brett, are you a kingdom now? You were just talking about voting. Oh, it, there's, a, there's a, a different view. See, I don't believe, um, while I do think we have a responsibility to vote, I, I don't believe that we as Christians are gonna usher in the kingdom of God. Um, as it turns out, the Bible says the kingdom of God's coming with or without you. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of stories in the Bible that kind of says the Lord is gonna set up his kingdom whenever, at an hour when you think not. And, um, and kingdom now people, they believe things are getting better and better. Have you heard sermons like this? There's, there's pastors out there saying things are getting better. And I'm like, wow, who, who could believe that uh, right now? Because you have to be kind of a dupe to believe that one. Uh, things are worse and they're gonna get worse according to the Bible. Perilous times will come in the last days. The Bible says. So this kingdom now sort of thing uh, is, is out there and a lot of uh, people sort of teach that, but um, I believe the Bible is very contrary to that idea. So what is the kingdom? Well, there's, there's a, a couple different senses. Some people would say, well, Jesus said the kingdom of God is among you. So hmm, what does that mean? And then, and then Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It almost seems to contradict, is the kingdom among us or is it coming? What's the deal? And the answer is yes. Uh, how do you, what do you mean, Brett? Well, if you're a Christian and you have Christ in you, the Bible talks about that. Paul says it's Christ in you. That's our hope that we have is Christ in us. And wherever the king is, that's where the kingdom is. Does that make sense? So if Christ is in you, we are a part. That's when Jesus said that about his disciples, hey, the kingdom of God is among you. He's talking really about the fact that the king is with them. Um, now, there were some zealots in those days that wished that Jesus would have set up his kingdom literally against the Roman Empire, and they had it all wrong because that's the coming kingdom that the Bible talks about. There is a time where literally Jesus is gonna come and rule and reign in Jerusalem on the throne and rule over the whole world. The Bible talks about that. That's, that's the kingdom Jesus was teaching us to pray about. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And by the way, when you're voting, don't put your hope in man because that's not gonna solve the problems of the world. But, um, but it might help, you know, in my opinion, by the way, voting, if, if we could save one life of an unborn child, that'd be worth voting uh, with all your might. Now, just one life of a child, if, if that's something we get out of that, I think that's huge, that's huge. So there's reasons, right? There's reasons we vote, but it's not with this delusional, oh man, if we vote right, we're gonna save the world and it's gonna be amazing. No, that's when Jesus comes. Jesus is gonna come, set up his kingdom, and all things will, be, will live happily ever after as Christians after that. Uh, that's a whole other story. So yes, the kingdom of God is among us. Christ is in us because he's the king. And, and the church, the Christian church, we, we get to be a part of the, the kingdom. You might even say like a pre-set up kingdom. We're part of that. But ultimately his kingdom will come.
Um, Now the universe is composed of two opposing forces. There's the kingdom of darkness, the Bible talks about, and the kingdom of light. Um, The kingdom of darkness, of course, is led by none other than Satan, the devil, uh, Lucifer, the dragon, the serpent, like all the things we talk about in the Bible as the devil. He's the sort of the leader of the kingdom of darkness, but the kingdom of light is uh, where God reigns. God reigns on that kingdom. And, and you might say Jesus is the king of kings, the Lord of lords. So these kingdoms, the kingdom of light and kingdom of darkness are mutually exclusive as, as light is to darkness. And um, uh, they are in conflict one with another. That, I think that, that should be clear if you've lived more than a few seconds on this planet. Uh, but the battle is within humanity, this kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. And uh, even Paul talks about you know, the, the warring that takes place between his flesh and his spirit, light and darkness. Um, and, and Jesus calls uh, people out. Uh, Jesus said this in John three nineteen. He said, and this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Um, now this, this starts to talk about another question. Why, people ask, why is there suffering in the world? If God is love, why is there disease? If God um, is all powerful, how are there hurricanes and earthquakes and death, tragedy, war, rape? Um, how does that happen if there's an all powerful, all knowing, all loving God? Um, how in the world does that happen? And people love to ask that question. And I understand the question. It's a valid question. But when you read the Bible, you you actually see kind of a bigger picture of what's going on. You have to go all the way back to the book of Genesis. When you read the story in Genesis, God created man and called his name Adam. And Adam was, as it turns out, now this is really important to understand, there's kind of a story here, uh, and we'll circle back around uh, to to the the parable that we went through. You might think, Brett, you're on a huge tangent. Yes, but I'm gonna bring it back around. Um, So so we're, we're in the Garden of Eden, And as it turns out, God, if you would, and I'm gonna use this um, liberally at first, but I'll show you what I mean later. God sort of said, okay, Adam, you're gonna have dominion over the earth. Here's the title deed to planet earth. And and that's when Adam kind of took charge and he started naming the animals and he was supposed to kind of subdue the earth and all this stuff. And and God gave him the ability to oversee, tend, and even uh, rule this planet. But then along came Lucifer, 10 seconds into the story, uh, in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, where he lured Adam and Eve and, and isn't it interesting that, you know, while we all know that Eve took the first bite, Adam took the second, Adam's the one who goes down for the sin. He's the one who the Bible says it was Adam's sin. Remember when Paul talked about Adam? He, he said, uh, you know, he was the first Adam. And then Paul started talking about the last Adam. What's that all about? Well, hold that just for a second. So Adam, he was our champion. He was the man that was, think about it. Like he was born, uh, you know, or created in total perfection without sin. Like, like, what would it be like to be a man that had no sin in him for like 10 seconds? Like, none of us really know what that feels like. We were born in sin, the Bible says. Um, we've bo- been born in a fallen, sinful world. But Adam, he knew what that was like. He was our champion, but he failed miserably. And, and, and you and I would have failed as well. Uh, I think that's kind of clear if you kind of give yourself an honest assessment. But be that as it may, uh, Adam bombed out. He, he was the big Adam bomb there in the Garden of Eden. Um, um, and Satan came to tempt him. Now, what was in it for Satan? Well, as it turns out, Adam and Eve submitted to what Satan was luring them to do. And, and the Bible says, to whom you submit, um, of him you become the servant. 
Uh, what? Are you saying Adam and Eve started to be servants of Satan? Oh yeah, servants of sin. Uh, we read that, by the way, in Romans 6, 16, where it says, Paul says, know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves, servants to obey, his servants you are to whom you obey. There, uh, whether of sin uh, unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. So you can serve the Lord or you can serve Satan. But when Adam and Eve um, you know, caved to, to the serpent, Satan, um, uh, they, they became servants of Satan. If you would, you need to kind of picture in your mind's eye, Adam and Eve took the title deed to planet Earth that God gave to him, and he passed it over to Lucifer, Satan, at that point. Now this explains part of this question, why is there suffering in the world? Why do bad things happen in the world? If God is all powerful, you know, the, the whole question. Um, we start to understand when the Bible is really clear about the role Satan plays in this world today. He is called in the Bible a lot of things. The God of this world, little g. The prince of the power of the air and the prince of darkness. Um, you know, the, uh, this is an interesting thing, um, you know, where uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, uh, it says, in whom the God of this world, that's, that's Satan, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine in, uh, into them. Here, you know, Paul is talking to the church in Corinth. And he's saying, man, um, this is what Satan does. He blinds eyes of, of men so that they might not see the glorious gospel of Christ. This is that warring of light, the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. And you, know, you might say, well, it looks like Satan's winning. Um, and you still say, well, why doesn't God squish Satan? Because you, you've said it a million times. You know, God could off Satan at any moment. True. Satan's just a created angel. Uh, he was a glorious one, powerful one. But we know Michael the archangel is gonna be the one to ultimately subdue uh, you know, Lucifer, the angel, the fallen angel, the devil. That's gonna happen according to uh, Revelation 12, Revelation 20, uh, we read about that. Um, so the phrase God of this world used by Paul uh, indicates that Satan is the major influence on the ideology um, and the opinions, the goals, the hopes, the views of the majority of people on this planet. And this starts to make sense. Um, his influence also encompasses the world's philosophies. Um, even you can see it in our education system uh, and commerce. We shouldn't be so shocked, I think, sometimes as Christians when we see this evil that is prevailing in so many places in our culture. Um, and he's also called the prince of the power of the air. In fact, Paul says in Ephesians 2.2, 2, uh, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. The prince of the power of the air. Um, it's, it's, um, <laughs> it's an interesting description um, of him just being the ruler of this world, that's what Satan does. Jesus said this in John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. Jesus is talking about Satan, uh, the prince of this world. Um, these titles and many more in the Bible signify that Satan has capabilities um, and Satan is the prince of the power of the air. Uh, what does it mean, the prince of the power of the air? There's a lot of debate about that, by the way. Um, but there's an interesting sideline note, and I wouldn't die on this battlefield, but there's an interesting thing. Remember in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus was in the storm, and Jesus looked out at the storm and he said, be still, he said. Um, and suddenly, 
the storm stopped and they marveled that he had power over the, even the, you know, the storm, the weather. Um, wouldn't that be nice here in Portland? Be sunny. Like, uh, that would be awesome. Uh, but we don't have that power, unfortunately. Jesus, however, did. Um, but th- there's an interesting thing. If you look at the Greek word for be still, you think, well, that's a basic word, be still. But actually, it's, it's interesting. The word is literally in the Greek, be muzzled, which is the same wording Jesus used when he spoke to demons. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing. That that's the only time Jesus used that, those words, muzzled, when he was talking to demonic uh, evil darkness and dark powers. And he says that to the storm, be muzzled, the same thing. It makes you wonder, you know, when, when uh, you know, the hurricanes come through and people in the insurance company, you, you know, you get your money for your house that got crushed by a tree and they say, well, it was an act of God. Uh, don't blame God for that. There were no hurricanes before the fall of man and before Satan lured us in to sin. The, the earth became a, in a fallen condition um, when, when Satan tricked humanity to give him the title deed. So everything evil and bad that's going on in the world, it's really Satan doing his thing. Now, um, I do have to put this little caveat in there that because um, there is confusion about this too, but you know, even though Satan is the God of this world, God, the, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jehovah, he is still the um, omniscient, omnipotent, all-powerful being over all the universe. You say, well, then why doesn't God deal with Satan? Well, the answer to that is he will, and the Bible's very clear at how he's gonna do that. And there's even a timing that he has for it. It's just not your timing. We want him to do it right now. Get rid of Satan right now. But there's a reason God uh, is, is um, delaying and it has to do with free will and choice. The Lord gave humanity free will and choice to choose whether we're gonna have the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light. And that's the way God wants it to be. Well, I don't know if I like that. Who cares? You're not God. Thank the Lord. Uh, but the Lord is patient. In fact, the Lord says, oh, I'm long suffering. And Peter talks about how, you know, don't think the Lord is lazy concerning his coming or slack, but he is long suffering to us. We're not willing that anyone should perish. Um, God is being patient as humanity makes their choices. But the Lord's heart is that everyone be saved. Now, this is really important, especially as we uh, continue to kind of move through this. So God is often blamed for bad things that happen when man gave the title deed of planet Earth to Satan. Well, the rest is history. Uh, Ever since that happened, the world's been spiraling down uh, ever since then. Um, So you might say, well, will the title deed ever again be put in the rightful hands of humanity? Or where's that gonna go? Well, as it turns out, there's there's a story in the Bible that tells us what's gonna happen to the title deed. Uh, Keep your finger here in Matthew 13. Flip back to the book of Revelation, chapter five. For Revelation five, there's this interesting little snapshot in heaven. Um, By the way, uh, I'm shocked that churches avoid the book of Revelation a lot of times um, because it's the only book of the Bible that says churches and people that read this book are gonna be blessed. Like it's it's a book with a promise, a biblical promise. It says you're gonna be blessed out of your socks if you read this book. And yet you're, oh, it's too controversial. Oh, it's too hard to understand. It's not hard to understand if you just take it chronologically the way it's laid out. You see in chapter two and three, the, the churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor. And then you see this heavenly scene. And I believe the church is seen in four and five of Revelation in heaven. Meanwhile, back at the ranch on earth, chapters six through 19 describes the seven year period called the tribulation. Um, it's very clear if you just kind of take the book of Revelation uh, at face value and don't try to juggle the, the origins and times and, and all that, that, that makes it confusing and hard. Um, but if you just take it the way it's laid out, it's pretty easy. Well, 
after the, sort of the rapture of the church. In fact, John, he's seeing the churches. And then the beginning of chapter four, it says, after these things, I looked up and there's a voice, you know, it says, uh, where he says, come up hither. And so he comes up into heaven. I think that's like a picture of the rapture of the church. Uh, and you see the church there. Um, but in chapter five, there's an event that happens. Look at verse one of chapter five. It says, and I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne, a book or literally a scroll written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. Now I'm gonna do this really quickly. Uh, we've done, if you want, you can go look up our Revelation 5 teaching because I go really deep into how do we know what this document, this scroll is? And if we had time, I'd explain more how we know that this is title deed to planet earth. Um, uh, as it turns out, Jeremiah chapter 32 helps identify this title deed, a scroll that has got seven seals and written on the front and the back. You don't normally write on the front and back of a scroll. Uh, um, none of us use scrolls anymore, but it's really a pain if you're trying to read something and you have to read the front and then unroll it and roll it the other way. Like it'd be really tricky to do that. Scrolls are kind of meant to be one-sided. So when you see a scroll that has writing on both the front and the back, what is that? Well, the title deed would, would be a scroll that would define the property or the uh, possession of a person. Uh, and you'd scroll it out and you'd have all the definitions. But then um, in, in Old Testament times, if you, were, um, if you lost your property because you went bankrupt or uh, due to hardship, you know, the deed, uh, the title deed would be scrolled and sealed with seven seals. And on the outside of the scroll would be written um, all your financial obligations. And you would have, uh, as the Old Testament history would tell us, you would have to meet those requirements within seven years in order to regain your property. By the way, one of the kind of interesting things of the Jewish laws is all the property eventually be returned to the original owners. Like, like that was not a thing where you could buy somebody's property and keep it forever and it'd be through your family generation after generation. Um, the Lord wanted the properties to stay within the, the families that were uh, given their inheritance. Um, there's people around the world that still do this. Uh, in the South Pacific, where we have our missionary base in Vanuatu, there's an interesting, all the tribal people have this kind of thing. You can buy property. You can buy beautiful oceanfront property um, uh, there in the South Pacific. Um, and they'll sell it to you for fairly reasonable. Uh, it's hard to get to, and there's a lot of great white sharks right off the ocean. Right? If you go wading, and the, they'll chomp your leg off and stuff. But, um, but it, th th there's a reason there's no um, resorts built along the beaches there, and here's why. Because they have a deal where you can buy the property, but you're, it's your property as, as long as the palm tree is alive. Huh? Yeah, the life of the palm tree, which is an average of 70 years, um, but once, you, once the palm tree dies, uh, it goes back to the original owner. That's the way it works there, which is kind of funny um, because you know, if I were a Nivanawatu person, I'd go out there with some roundups, say, okay, time's up, you know, and uh, your palm tree's dead. But anyway, that's just me, I'm sorry. Um, but that was the thing. Jewish property would go, the title deeds would go to other people, but the, the goal was to get it back to the original owner. So the scroll with seven seals and the requirements written on the outside, if those qualifications were met, the person who, would, who took the possession of your property was required by law to return it to you. And it would, this transaction would happen in the temple in Jerusalem. You'd go to the temple in Jerusalem and they would read all the definitions publicly uh, where the qualifications on the outside scroll were read before the people. And if those qualifications were met, the scroll would go back to the rightful owner. Okay. Brett, what does this have to do with finding a treasure in a field? 
Well, as it turns out, this title deed to planet Earth, um, uh, we lost it. It went to Satan. So suddenly in Revelation chapter five, we see this scroll uh, on the throne, written on the front and the back, seven seals. Verse two in chapter five, it says, and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and loose the seals thereof? And verse three, no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. Now, I wanna point out the, the mighty angel uh, says something that's kind of fascinating. He doesn't ask who is willing to open the scroll. That wasn't the question. There's been a lot of people willing to take title D to planet Earth. Alexander the Great, Genghis Khan, Napoleon, Hitler. It's like there's people that tried to take planet Earth and do their thing, right? Um, but, but as it turns out, this is the question that this mighty angel, who is not willing, but who is worthy? And, and, and then, you know, verse three says, there's no one who is worthy, uh, not in heaven or earth or under the earth. I mean, that's some interesting descriptions right there that we could talk about, but we won't. Um, but, um, but no one was worthy, not only to open it, to be, but to even look at it. Like, that's pretty sad. Now, John, understanding that this book, the scroll was important and that it needed to be taken as being the title deed, what is his response? Look at verse four. It says, John the apostle, he says, and I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Um, the word um, says there, I wept much. John is sobbing convulsively. That's what the Greek text tells us. Um, if no one was uh, the one who was gonna be able to redeem the title deed, John knew what that meant. It meant that the earth, the world, is doomed forever to be under the power of darkness, under the power of Satan. Um, and by the way, um, if you're a Bible student, there's so many cool connections and maybe some of you are already thinking about that. Remember the story of Ruth and the near kinsman who was able to redeem? Like this all links to all those beautiful pictures of the Bible, the Old Testament, the near kinsman redeemer. Somebody needs to redeem and take back uh, the scroll, but no one seems to be worthy and it seems really dire until verse five. Good news, da 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 da. It says in verse five, and one of the elders said unto me, weep not, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Ha, who's the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, anybody? Jesus, that's right, that's always the right answer. Um, yes, Jesus, and, and look what's, this is quite a dramatic scene, verse six. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain. This is Jesus. Um, having seven horns, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. Boy, I could, if you're interested in what all this stuff is, we covered it in our, through the Bible study in Revelation 5. But um, it says, and verse seven, he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat upon the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts, the four and 20 elders fell down before the lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, thou art worthy to take the book and to open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us to God by, the, by blood out of uh, every kindred and tongue and people and nation, and hast made us unto our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. 
And then the rest of it's just a big party in heaven. I mean, they're just gonna worship and celebrate because of this glorious event. So, so you say, okay, Brett, great. Uh, title deed was, is gonna be taken back and the only one worthy to take that title deed is uh, Jesus. And how did he do it? Well, well, there's a hint of that here in Revelation. He's the lamb as though he had been slain uh, in that heavenly scene. That's, that's the picture. Now, let's go back to our text here in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, um, where Jesus gives us this one verse parable that explains the same redemptive process. Now, let me just say, there's a, there's a, there's a thing I kind of have to undo. Maybe some of you have heard sermons or even read in some commentaries. Um, there's a different opinion about what this means, this parable. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of quickly just say it. Some people believe this is a, a story about the treasure, which they say, that's Jesus. Because of course, Jesus is the treasure. And uh, then, you know, you're the man who's supposed to sell all your possessions and give everything so that you can have the treasure, Jesus. Um, question, does that line up with biblical theology? Not even close. Um, do you have to sell all your possessions to have Jesus? Do you have to do, what do you have to do to, to have Jesus? Anybody? Just believe. Uh, you don't have to sell all your possessions. In fact, you and I just kind of sit there and go, wow, Jesus, we believe. Um, and it's kind of the opposite. So, so that's the wrong interpretation of this. And um, most scholars uh, would say, yeah, that's a wrong interpretation. But you'll see that out there, just giving you kind of heads up. Um, by the way, there's some other things about this uh, that I'm saving for uh, Wednesday night, because uh, there's also uh, imagery and discussion about the Jews that we'll talk about too, and Israel and their position with God. But uh, for today, uh, I just want to kind of make it simple, and that is, um, th what, is what are the, the, the pieces here? Um, so th this, if, in Jesus' day, if a man had wealth, sometimes he would bury uh, uh, his wealth in a field to keep it safe from thieves. The man in this parable seems to stumble across such of a treasure, uh, maybe a treasure chest, maybe it was, maybe he just found a blue sapphire or something like that, or gold, I don't know. But it is a treasure nonetheless. And he, he finds this treasure in a field. So it, notice it says here in our little one verse thing, it says, and for joy. Why did he do it? For joy um, there, thereof. He went and sold all that he had um, so that he could buy the field. He gave everything that he had because he knew the field had a treasure of great value. Um, and by the way, this is exactly what uh, Jesus Christ did in 2 Corinthians 8, 9. Um, it tells us this. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Um, this is what, this, let's break this down. Um, so um, what is... Um, this parable of the treasure. So the first question we have to ask is, what is this, this field? Um, and in, in a previous parable in this chapter, um, the field is, is compared to the world. Um, if you don't believe me, I'll just give you a sneak preview of Wednesday night coming attractions. Look at verse 38 of the same chapter. It says, the field is the world. Any questions? <laughs> so uh, just, just in case you think I'm making some of this stuff up, I wanna make sure you, you don't believe that. So in a previous parable, Jesus is gonna identify the field as the world. And by the way, that's the same thing of the parable of the sower that we did last week. You say, well, Brett, the soil was the heart of man. Yes, but the soil that's in the field represents all the humanity 
uh, which is the world. Uh, does that make sense? So they're, they're all um, expositionally uh, congruent, uh, these, these parables, by the way. Um, so the, the, what is the field? We know it's the, the world. Who is the man in the story? Um, I believe it's Jesus, um, Jesus Christ, who would give all for uh, this field. Um, and, and by the way, this, this is where that, the first Adam and the last Adam sort of comes in. Adam was a man who bombed out. Jesus, God became a man through Jesus and he won the, the scroll back. Um, the first Adam sold us out. Jesus Christ, the, the last Adam, uh, brought, bought us back. Um, uh, you'll, you'll hear Paul talk like this, the first Adam and the last Adam. The first Adam ate of a forbidden tree. Jesus, um, uh, uh, the last Adam, hung on a tree uh, to redeem us from the enemy. Um, sin, through the first Adam, produced thorns. Um, God, through the last Adam, buried those thorns in his own brow. Uh, and died on a cross for the sins of the world. You see, the price of getting the title deed back, well, the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. So for Christ to have redeemed the world back to himself, um, death was required. And that's the whole reason that Jesus gave it all and died on the cross for the sins. So who is the man? It's Jesus. And what did he want? Well, he, he bought the, the, um, the world or the planet, if you would, um, and why, why, um, what, why did he want it? He wanted the treasure that was in the world. That's kind of an interesting thing, you know, um, that he, he wanted to buy the field, which is the world, so that he could get the treasure. And then the, the last question then was, what's the treasure in the story? Well, that's where it gets kind of special, and that is, it's us. You are the treasure um, that Jesus gave it all. Um, you know, like the old hymn, Jesus gave it all, all to him I owe. Like, um, you know, he paid a debt he did not owe. We owed a debt we could not pay. Um, no one was worthy to open the scroll, not anybody in heaven or earth or under the earth, but it was only Jesus who was able to take it. Why? Because he was the perfect lamb, sin, sinless, and he died on the cross uh, for the sins of the world. And that's why we're saved, redeemed, um, purchased back. Now, this is an amazing truth when you think about it. Here's God who says, oh, I want that treasure. And it just doesn't feel right to me to think of myself as a treasure. And by the way, in the 70s and 80s, we got really into self-affirmation. Remember Saturday Night Live did a spoof for the guy looking in the mirror? You're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. And he just looked at himself and affirmed. And, and that's the way, you know, you're a winner. You're, a, you know, you're number one. And, and we've been telling kids that for years now and it's really messed up our culture. But, um, that, but, but as it turns out, there is a kind of truth that's sort of like that. As a Christian, we acknowledge we're a wretched, miserable bunch of sinners. That's the truth of the matter. You're not a winner, you're a loser. That's what we believe. The Bible teaches that. All have sinned, all have fallen short. Uh, the glory of God, there's no one righteous, not even one, none that even really seeks after God. This is what Paul clearly uh, speaks out in the book of Romans to you and me. But that's the bad news. The good news is for some reason, and I sure can't, I don't know how in the world the Lord looks at me and actually not only likes me, but he loves me and, and, he, and he treasures me. And, and I look at you guys and I think, wow, even more incredible. Like, like God, no, just, just kidding. Just kidding. No, no, you and me, like we look at each other and we look at humanity and we're like, what? God loves the world, why? 
And as it turns out, I'm not sure I have a great answer for that. Other than this, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And for some reason, the Lord looks at you and, and, and not only does he love you, the Bible says so much about how he thinks towards you. See, a lot of us think he's mad at us and disappointed or upset or angry, but actually the Bible says his thoughts towards you are precious thoughts. And it says that the precious thoughts that he has, they're more numerous than there is sand on the seashore. That's the precious thoughts that God has towards you. And it's just kind of amazing. I don't get it, but I'm sure happy about it. God loves the world so much that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever uh, believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. They've been redeemed, purchased back. Now, some of you might say, Brett, that's great and all, you know, theoretically, but I don't feel loved. I don't feel uh, special. I don't feel wanted. Well, it doesn't matter what you feel. The truth is God looks at you and says, you're a treasure. Um, well, Brett, I feel like I'm, I'm more of an irritant. I must irritate God to no end. God must be disappointed with me. I always like to bring this up because I get emails back. No, God can be disappointed. No, he can't. He can be saddened by your behavior. He can be grieved by your behavior. But disappointment means that you didn't know the person was gonna disappoint you. Like you had high hopes and, oh, what a bummer. I thought Brett was gonna be such an amazing guy. God doesn't go, oh, I'm so disappointed. Um, that's, that's one of the things God can't be, by the way, um, along with other things. He can't lie. And there's other things the Bible says God cannot do. Um, I did a whole sermon once on things God can't do, which is kind of an interesting uh, topic. But, but that's one of them. And, and as it turns out, he can be sad and grieved, but he still treasures you. That's what's kind of amazing. Um, and so you say, but Brett, I, I really am an irritant. Did you know there's a, the second parable? Let's cover this one real fast. Don't worry, I won't do another huge tangent. Um, but this is a two-verse parable, and it's almost the same amount of words. Check it out, verse 45. Um, uh, so, so by the way, just let's review. Parable of the treasure. What is the field? The field is the world. Who is the man? It's Jesus Christ. What did he want? He wanted the treasure, but what was the treasure? That's you. I hope we, we can remember those things. That's kind of the key. Now, then we look at the next parable that's totally related. It's almost like restating the same parable in a different way. And it's verses 45 and 46. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant, uh, a merchant man seeking goodly pearls. Like the guy I was telling you about in the beginning of the story or the guy that found the, you know, he was out looking for some rocks. Um, that's who this guy is. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant man seeking goodly pearls who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The end. Another really short little tiny little parable. But it's totally linked to the last one. The only difference is it's not just a treasure in general, it's actually a pearl of great price. He finds this pearl. And I love this imagery because what is a pearl? Did you know that a pearl starts out as an irritant? You know, I was just telling you, I don't know if the Lord treasures me. Well, I feel like I irritate the Lord. Well, that's what a pearl is. It's an irritant. Uh, if you go and look the way, you know, and this is kind of an interesting thing. If you look at the way an oyster produces a pearl, what happens is um, an, an irritant of some kind, some people believe it's a grain of sand, kind of gets into the inside of the oyster. And it's like the oyster, if you would, kind of getting a sort of a splinter 
Um, but the or, or, oyster's natural reaction to uh, cover up the irritant, and some people say it's sand, some say it's some pestilence that gets into this, like a little micro bug that gets into the um, oyster. And the oyster takes um, and, and does something that's really weird. The inside smooth part of an oyster, uh, the shell, is covered with what's called nacre. And that nacre substance is white and very smooth, um, and it's layer upon layer, that's the inside of the shell. But when there's a little irritant, like a grain of sand, what happens? The oyster just naturally starts producing more nacre and it starts coating the piece of sand over and over and over again um, for as long as it takes and just keeps coating it and coating it and coating it with this nacre substance. And eventually it forms a pearl. Um, interestingly, the more irritating the grain of sand, the more beautiful the pearl. That's the way of the oyster. Um, and it's kind of interesting because um, you know, a perfectly round pearl is the one that's of great value, the pearl of great price. And, and as it turns out, um, here's the Bible saying that the Lord is the one who sold all to get the pearl of great price. That's you. You and I are the irritant that became, does this remind you of us being irritants that are suddenly wrapped in something? Does that remind you of anything? Right. Isaiah the prophet says, you, you know, your sins, you know, um, you'd be like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. And then later in Isaiah, he says, um, you know, I will robe you in my righteousness. That's what the Lord does. Um, so when you ask the Lord to come into your life and accept Jesus, you suddenly are covered. No longer are you an irritant grain of sand sin, but your sin is covered and forgiven. And you're surrounded, if you would, by his goodness so uh, although you might feel uh, incredibly irritating and a failure, loser, guess what? Um, God looks at you and says, that's my work of art. That's what I'm doing in that person, the pearl. Um, Ephesians 2.10 talks like that. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Philippians 1.6, uh, you know, is a classic verse on this. It says that we can be confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it till the day of Christ. Um, so, by the way, you know, when the world sees the irritant that you are and that I am, it, it's more even of a marvel when people see the Lord starting to work in your life. I think that's what our testimony is. You know, you and I, we're, we're these people that are flawed and messed up, but then when the Lord starts doing a work, even the world kind of marvels and says, man, that's, that's amazing. And eventually they would, they would give glory, hopefully, to the lamb who's the worthy lamb. Hallelujah to the lamb, you know, is what we would say. For the, 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 the grain of sand became sort of a pearl of great price. And this makes me just kind of marvel. Um, and, and I have to admit, I'm not a real sensitive guy. I'm not a huggy, squishy, uh, fluffy kind of guy. I'm not. I, I wish I was more sensitive. I wish I was more, that, but, but I have to admit, even I hear this story and I kind of moved at the Lord's profound love that he has for me and that he has for you. And when you feel unloved, don't forget to read Matthew chapter 13, verses 44, 45, and 46, because the Lord looks at you as that pearl of great price. And he gave it all. And even as the verse 44, it was the joy that he had that he sold all, gave it all and purchased the treasure. The joy, does that remind you? It was for the joy that was set before him, he did what? Endured the cross and despised the shame. Like the, the language of the Bible um, just continues to uh, you know, track with this amazing thing. Question, one more thing. 
How did the grain of sand, the irritant, become a pearl? What did the sand do to make itself suddenly a pearl of great price? Anybody want to answer that? Nothing. Zip. Zilch. Nada. This is an important thing. It's a perfect imagery because we're not saved by our good works and being better and stronger and you know more powerful as Christians or any of that. Um, we're, Ephesians 2.8, we're saved by grace through faith, not of yourselves. It's a gift from God, not of works, uh, lest any man should boast. The Bible is clear that it's his work that makes you valuable. So instead of us telling because you're wonderful and you're a blue ribbon winner and you're a trophy and, and you're, you know, people like you, and instead of telling them that hogwash, say, no, you're a little sinner who deserves all kinds of punishment and trouble. But good news, the Lord still loves us so much that he, he forgives us and saves us. And by the way, when a person understands the love of God, what does the Bible say? It says it's his kindness that will then lead us to what? Repentance. Once you realize the love of God, that will make you want to clean up your act and start living for the Lord and serving the Lord. We get it backwards. We think, well, the Lord hates me, and so I better go to church on Sunday and maybe do some penance and listen to that long-winded, bloviating pastor uh, for hours and hours. You know, um, you, you can do that if you want, but that's not impressive to God. Um, God wants you to just repent of your sins and to just say, I need you and I accept you and I believe that you treasure me so much that you died on the cross for my sins and rose from the grave. And if you do that and believe that, you'll be saved. You didn't earn it, you didn't deserve it. It's a free gift, just like the pearl, the sand becomes a pearl by nothing of its own doing. Um, it was actually the Lord who does that. Um, and, and you know, it, it circles back to the kingdom of God. You, you know, you're either part of the dark kingdom still or you're part of the light kingdom. And I'm so thankful that the Lord made the way. You know, Colossians 1.13, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear son? That's the Lord Jesus who does that. We are the ones who've been transformed. Um, we're the ones who've been changed by the Lord himself. Um, what a glorious truth. Two objectives simply this, this morning. Um, number one, I hope that if you're a, uh, a, an old timer Christian like me, I hope you would um, just be once again resensitized to just the love of Christ, the love that God has for you and how he views you and values you. Um, the world can beat you down all day long, but if you understand that God loves you and, and, and truly you're his workmanship, you're, you're his work of art, and ultimately he's gonna get you to heaven for eternity. Man, that's the greatest news in the world. That's why it's called the gospel. And we should be glad about that as old timer Christians. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. That's, that's one of the things we should always remember. But, but the second group would be the people that don't know the love of Christ yet. Maybe you've not received the Lord. See, this is where we talked about, you know, why do bad things happen in the world? It's because Satan's in control and we're sinners and we're also, we, Satan and humanity has done a real great job with, with messing up the world. Um, but you still have a choice. You can choose to go that direction. It's like the vote that you have this Tuesday. You can choose light or darkness. It's just that simple. But, but more importantly, with eternity and your life, you have, a, you have a say in the matter. It's called free will. God leaves it up to you. God's a perfect gentleman. He doesn't force you to be his treasure. He doesn't say, I want you as my treasure, so you're gonna be my treasure no matter what. As it turns out, you have a choice in the matter and the Lord leaves that up to you. Whether you're gonna receive his redemptive work or reject it, it's up to you. 
That's what you have to do and make sure you're careful with that one. Why don't we bow our heads and we'll close our eyes and would you as Christians perhaps be in prayer? Because I think that um, maybe there might be a few this morning who's never really accepted Jesus. So Christians be in prayer, bow your heads. And I'm gonna just ask, have you accepted this love, this redemptive work of Jesus Christ? Um, You know, it's an interesting thing that um, people will reject this because it's free and it's eternal. And it's just whether you're gonna choose to believe what God says in his word. Um, And I've never regretted once accepting Jesus as my savior. So are you gonna receive the love of Christ or are you gonna be stubborn and reject it? Um, Because the Lord will be a perfect gentleman. He'll let you do whatever you want and, and you will be on your own at some point. Um, if you don't accept Christ. So if that's you and you'd like to just confess your faith, you gotta first of all repent. That means just acknowledge your sin before God. Repentance, that's what it means. Just acknowledging, Lord, I'm a sinner. I've blown it, I fall short. I am a sinner like Brett said there and like the Bible said. Um, and, and, And just acknowledge that and then confess with your mouth, believe in your heart the Lord Jesus that God raised him up from the dead that he's the lamb that was slain for your sins. He paid your price and you can accept that redemptive work right now and be saved. Being a Christian is not going to church or giving money or being nice all the time. Uh, That's not what a Christian is. A Christian is someone who knows they're a sinner and they accept the free gift of salvation. If that's you, would you just, between you, me and the Lord, I'm not gonna embarrass you or get you in front of everybody, but right where you're sitting, if that's you, would you acknowledge that and say, I wanna pray that confession of faith. Would you acknowledge that by just lifting your hand right now? I'll just acknowledge you guys that are out there. And yeah, awesome, cool. You guys there over here, cool, good, good. Don't let me miss you. I'm just gonna look around for a second. Awesome. Back over here, good. Good, way in the back, I see you there, cool. Over here, good. Let me just look around for a minute more. I don't wanna miss anybody. Cool. Cool. I'm gonna pray this confession of faith and I'm gonna ask the whole church, let's pray this out loud together, backing these uh, 10 or 12 people right now. Let's pray together. Dear Father in heaven, I believe in your son, Jesus. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins and that he rose up from the grave and that I'm forgiven. Help me to walk with you. Thank you for saving me. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Lord, I I pray as we often do, Lord, for these people who've just confessed their faith. I pray that you'd wrap your loving arms around them, that they would know that their sins are forgiven, that while we all know we're messed up and sinners, you love us so much. May they know your love. I pray that you just stir their hearts and encourage them today, Lord, because of the work that you have done. Lord, you're the faithful one. You're the one that takes an irritant grain of sand and turns it into a pearl. Uh, How thankful we are for that. So bless these, your people, Lord. I pray that we grow in our faith and know more of your goodness, Lord, as we walk with you. So bless your church today, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.